0: It's a good thing, it's a good thing. Sorry for anyone whose name is Kathy. Good morning, my name is Sam and I get to preach uh, often here. We're in Matthew chapter 22, and so if you turn there, we're going to be going through the last part of that chapter, beginning in verse 34. If you're new, we go through books of the Bible and we are in Matthew. Uh, We're just ending um, kind of a section that will take us to the end of 23 and then 24 and 25 uh, will take us to the end of July. And that's a lot of end time stuff, kind of both confusing and exciting stuff. So that will be, um, that'll be fun to go through. Right now we're in Matthew chapter 22. And I'm uh, going to read oh, 10 or 12 verses here. should be on your screen. Verse 34 of chapter 22 says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one is able to answer him a word, nor from the day, from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. This is God's word. I'm going to pray so I don't mess it up. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have been gracious to come down and and to speak to us and to not leave Yourself completely a mystery, but to reveal Yourself through Your Word, by Your Spirit. And So we pray the Holy Spirit, You'll move me out of the way. You'll speak the words that You need to speak to those to whom You need to speak them, whether they be words of conviction or words of comfort. But Father, we ask that You will lead us to the place where we find Your love which is the cross of Jesus Christ, and let us think about His name and His glory and all that He has done for us when all is said and done. In the name of Jesus, we pray and hope. Amen. So this is a strange um, sermon, and this is why. Um, I'm going to kind of blow it up a little bit bigger, and that's because um, the guys who divided the chapters and put the little bold headings uh, were not alive when it was actually written, and so they have kind of... Uh, put sections in there, and so it's difficult to take a section of Scripture out and not understand the larger context, and so um, this has a lot to do with leaders. Jesus is talking to leaders, and so uh, I'm going to be kind of going backwards into 21 and 22 because they kind of go together. But to begin, I want to just remind ourselves that as Americans in the 21st century, uh, Jesus words and his actions as we read them in here aren't very controversial by today's standards. Not real um, shocking considering what we see in uh, the religious leaders of our day and some of the things that blast out on the news. Um, In over 2,000 years, though we have heard about Jesus in that length of time and many books outside of Scripture have been written about Jesus, um, there has never ever been a discovery of, of Jesus Secret love child, or uh, the fact that he, you know, said some racially charged hate speech one time, or that he uh, had some secret financial scandal, which is pretty commonplace today, uh, sadly, with many religious leaders. Um, what Jesus says and, and does isn't really pretty shocking to us today. Um, but if you can place yourself into the perspective of a first-century religious Jew, uh, what he says was uh, mind-blowing. Some of the things he said, um, which was, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus said uh, that if you're to look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery in your heart. Jesus said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus had said that he was greater than the temple, Uh In John, we see that Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father, which is pretty major. He also said that before Abraham, the father of Judaism, that before Abraham was born, Jesus existed. Uh, Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, then you are going to die in your sins. And Jesus said, look guys, just... Because you call me Lord doesn't actually mean you're saved, so he said some very controversial things, some shocking things that from a first century Jews perspective they would have really been uh, hateful towards him or at least concerned about uh, themselves and their belief system and even though a lot of people followed him, there was large crowds that always followed him the leaders of Judaism of which chapters twenty one and And 22 are largely written to, because remember, Matthew is writing to Jews. He's a Jew writing to Jews, probably 30-ish years after Jesus rose from the dead. The leaders of Judaism all reject him for speaking these hard truths and and for speaking with such certainty and with such authority. And so they reject any claims he makes. They argue with the teaching uh, he has, and they challenge his integrity. And as Jesus teaches from the temple, which all these chapters are taking place, he's sitting in the temple, the center of Judaism, teaching and and really admonishing them in many ways, he begins to be confronted several times with different leaders of Judaism, all asking different questions, revealing different ways that they have rejected him. So you may have not noticed, but from chapter 21 to 22, there's four specific groups of people that ask him these questions. The first group uh, of people were uh, the chief priests and elders, if you read in the, right after he cleanses the temple. And they come up to him and they challenge his authority religiously. Who gives you the authority to, to clean up the temple like this and tell us how we should or should not worship. And then the next group that comes up, very specifically, are the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they come up and they challenge his authority socially or politically as they ask him questions about Caesar, and whether you should pay taxes or not. And then the third group we saw last week when Brian preached was the Sadducees, a very affluent, influential group, and they question his authority theologically. These are the guys that didn't believe in the resurrection, and they're coming trying to trick him with a question, knowing that they don't agree with him theologically, and they want to prove him wrong. And then finally today, we see this last guy as part of the Pharisees, really, but the Uh, scribe or the lawyer, these are the scholarly guys, the academic guys, and they're coming and questioning him morally, moral authority. So all these guys are are challenging him and they represent different groups. Now the idea of questioning authority is very popular in our world. The idea of you should question all authority regardless, there's t-shirts and bumper stickers made about it. It goes back to a Greek philosopher that first said that, but it was made most popular uh, during the kind of chaotic, chaotic, uh, colorful, cultural time in the 60s. Question authority. Challenge authority. And it was a reaction, and, and somewhat a valid one, to authoritative abuses that really have plagued cultures for all of history. And so they would say that the authority of men should be questioned and not blindly followed, as if those are just the only two options, right? You either challenge all authority or you blindly follow it. I would argue that there is something else, but those are the two options when we talk about questioning authority that often come up. And taken to an extreme, a culture that just questions authority and challenges authority, this mentality ends up creating a, a culture of skeptics and and full of conspiracy theories and they produce TV shows like ancient aliens where they question all kinds of weird stuff and go this is that's aliens of course right and it gets kind of strange but the foundational aspect of it is they are challenging all authority and what happens eventually is that you're no longer questioning to protect from abuse you're actually abusing with your questions. And you begin to use them to justify your rebellion. And that's what these guys are doing. And that's really what the world does. And it's no more clear or, or no more clearly demonstrated than back in the Garden of Eden, where our first parents questioned and then rejected the authority of God's Word in our lives. So it's not a surprise. Men reject the Word of God and the Lordship of Jesus. This is uh, the world we live in. We talk about the world in the most negative connotation. We're talking about a, a people that is in rebellion against God. According to Apostle John, what's in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's a world that is in rebellion against God, but it's a world that acknowledges that God is there. In other words they know enough to recognize that God is there they know enough to be condemned for their rebellion but they do not know enough to be saved apart from his grace so the world exists under judgment in ignorance because of the rejection of God's Word and they have a different governing authority in their life they've rejected God's authority and they've replaced him and essentially the person in authority of their lives is themselves that takes different colors typically sometimes the decisive authority in what we'll describe as an unbelievers life is their intellect what makes sense to them what they can understand is what is true and good and right and what they'll accept for others it's more intuitive it's emotional whatever they feel Is right I'm gonna go with my gut cuz that doesn't feel right not to say that your gut is always wrong but say in terms of a decisive governing authority feelings aren't really trustworthy all the time and then there's those whose decisive authority is their experience so what is right what is wrong good and bad true or false foolish or wise is basically centered on men what they think what they feel and what works for them essentially they love themselves more than they love God now the world's rejection that we're talking about is not surprising that's not like no wow I didn't know that obviously the world has rejected God the world is in rebellion against God the world is full of blind men who cannot see dead men who cannot make themselves alive natural men the Bible says who cannot understand spiritual things They do not know the love of God. But these guys that Matthew is talking to in chapter 21 and 22, the leaders of Judaism, the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the scribes, you might as well say the pastors, the priests, the theologians in the schools, like all these guys, these guys are the ones who claim... To love God and love his word and on the surface that's what they look like They sound like they love God they sometimes act like they love God yet all these men reject Jesus all these men reject the Son of God and it's not really that they've rejected him as much as they have replaced him and then frighteningly these men who have rejected the Son of God and yet say they love God and love His Word right? they all have some belief and conviction in the Word of God they build very robust religious communities they gather people together they have disciples and followers they have core values they have theological convictions they have moral codes and rituals what that sounds like church these leaders who we know don't love God but they say they love God and they have his word all build these unholy communities these guys are not the world that unabashedly reject God's authority These are supposedly the ones who embrace His authority. These are the ones who declare they love God, who are waiting for the Messiah. They uphold, by all appearances, the things of God, and yet they replace God's Son. And my fear is that the church today has done the same. Now, I say that not to say, but we figured it out, so don't worry, right? I say that going, the church has done that, is doing that, and could do that. As I read this as one of your pastors, I was concerned, not fearfully so, but sober to the reality that you could have something grow that has all the appearances of what seems like godliness and have no Jesus. And so each of these groups, as I went through, I think represents what happens when you replace Jesus with a different thing. And one of those things is something that we could easily easily become guilty of, as individuals or as a church. And these things are good things. I don't want to pit them against Jesus but what happens is we put them above Jesus and then they are pitted against him they were given for God's glory to uphold his authority and the problem is they weren't designed to be an authority so let's look at these four groups together So we'll go backwards a little bit to 21 the first group I think represents those that sometimes replace Jesus For rituals like the chief priests and the elders and this happens when the medium of worship supplants the message when the way that you worship becomes more important than the one you worship this is the group that challenged him after he cleansed the temple he cleansed the temple if you remember of animals that were used for worship it wasn't just a bunch of booths to sell, you know, bottles that say, hey, atonement or whatever. It wasn't like that. It was animals that were there for worship in the temple. And the leaders wanted to make sure that they made worship convenient. And dare I say, that they made worship comfortable for the consumer. I want to make it easy to worship. I want to be able to walk in the temple, buy my goat or my sheep or whatever, and just go. Make it simple. I did my ritual. And what happened was before performing the rituals became the governing influence so that whatever they did was devoted to making sure those rituals were easy to perform. And as a result, the temple became so full of so much stuff that no real worship could occur. There was no room, literally, for Jesus. And so you go, well, how can that happen in a church? Oh, so easily. And you've been part of churches. Heck, maybe we're in that place or fallen into that before. But as churches, we can get so filled up with events and programs and various practices that we believe are helping our worship. And what they do is they actually hinder it. You can have small groups and no Jesus. We can have all kinds of service events and outreach events and no Jesus. We can have good music, but no Jesus. We can have instructive sermons without Jesus. Some leaders think more Honestly, about the religious practices and strategies, than they do about Jesus, and they end up leading churches that love their rituals and traditions more than they love their Redeemer. And the phrase you always hear these people talk about is, "This is what we do. This is what we do. Oh, we do this." The people come to the church, go, "Oh, you know what we should do?" Now, again. Those things are evil in themselves. But when they become the most important thing, they do become evil because they take us away from Christ. Now, the church is sometimes people, individuals. And again, let's remind ourselves that as we speak about the church, we're not speaking about this thing over here. Oh, yeah, the church. The church is the gathering of God's people. It's us. So as we criticize the church, let's... I believe that spirit-led conviction begins with contrition and then leads to criticism. If it skips contrition and like humility and what's this doing to me and goes directly to criticism, there's a problem. So as we speak about the church, we're speaking about individuals, and sometimes churches replace Jesus for causes, just like the political Herodians did, that second group. So this happens when significant causes become more important than Jesus as individuals in church the most important thing becomes what you're doing in society whatever service you might be performing again not trying to demonize the service but the heart maybe behind it there are many causes that Christians can take up that are important from defending the unborn to fighting against addictions to uh, educating our children, to helping the homeless. Many of these are very important, but they're dangerous when they become too important or more important than Jesus. For the Herodians, Jesus became not Lord. He became a tool for them to accomplish their social agenda. They love their city, Jerusalem. And we can love our city, Snohomish, and the areas around it. But it's dangerous in that love begins to compete with the love of Christ. When you become known as the church that does X, and that's not Jesus. And they're like, oh, I think they're about Jesus, but man, they serve the poor like no one's business. Serving the poor is awesome. Meeting the needs of the needy is important, and it's biblical. But Jesus is more important. When our commitment to a cause or a social movement becomes the governing authority in our faith, you begin to be identified or you find your identity rooted in what you do for Jesus versus who you are in Jesus. And again, dangerous. Some leaders think more about causes than they do about Jesus, and they end up leading churches that love society more than they love their Savior. And the phrase you hear from them is not I do, but I support. I support this. This is important. What? You don't think it's important? Oh, well, you're inferior. So it begins to affect one another. And because I support this, I am superior. Your identity is no longer attached to what Jesus says you are, but how society receives you or not. The third group, the Sadducees, represent those at individual churches that replace Jesus with theology. And from my background, that might be more apt to do. This happens when your view of God maybe theological but not biblical and even maybe biblical but I'll continue basically with the Sadducees for example instead of accepting God for who he was and who had revealed himself they rejected the true God and they made a false God made in their image one they liked And churches like this what happens is the most important aspect of their church, the thing you hear most about, the thing that most identifies them is their theological framework. Their theological position. That's all you hear about. Everything becomes filtered through that theological framework. And as an individual, that's very dangerous. This is what the Sadducees did. right? The Sadducees came to Jesus. They did not believe in the resurrection. And they knew Jesus did. And so they refused to receive Jesus because He didn't fit who they thought He should be. And you know what happens when an individual or church's thoughts about God or feelings about God or view about God doesn't fit the framework that is your authority? You change God what happens is you may read the Bible like, well, I think God's like this. You read the Bible and go, well, that must be wrong. Instead of you and submitting to what God has revealed Himself to be, instead of the Sadducees revealing to like who Jesus says He was and is, they change who the Messiah is. They change who God is. Oh, God's not like that. When your theology becomes your Lord, typically it ends up drawing you away from Jesus rather than toward Him. And what you know about God becomes more important than God Himself and how He's revealed Himself to be. Some leaders think more about theology than they do about Jesus, and they lead churches that love catechisms and confessions and creeds more than they do Christ. And all you hear, the most common phrase is, well, I believe this. I believe God's like this. I think God's like this. Now, again, I'm not trying to pit theology against Jesus, but I'm warning us that that can happen. I believe right theology, biblical theology, always leads to Jesus, and in fact, sound doctrine according to 1 Timothy is always in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we go like this, and then we begin to change Jesus based off what we've decided about God. Dangerous. Finally, the last group of people that we see in here is the one I read today. And these are the individuals the churches that replace Jesus' lordship with law. you got a lawyer who comes and he asks a legal question. He is a scribe who was a scholar. He was an expert in every nuance of the law. Now, there were 613 Old Testament laws. 365 of those were negative. Forbid from doing this, do not do this. 248 of them were positive. And so, this man is coming to Jesus going, okay, out of these 613, what's the greatest one? What's number one? What's most important? If we can't obey the rest, what's most important? Now, the man really doesn't want to know which of the commands is most important. He's trying to trick Jesus into dishonoring himself before the crowds. It was readily known by all Jewish cultures that they, all of God's commands were equally great, just as all sin was equally abhorrent in his eyes, even if some have greater consequences than others. So avoiding the trap, Jesus responds to him by telling him that the spirit of the entire law is summarized by this. The entire Old Testament is summarized by this. What God wants for us and expects from us is summarized by this. Love God and love people. And a side note, you know what's interesting about that? Is that we pit those two against each other even. This is how messed up we are, right? Right? Like, oh, I'm going to love God, and I, I can't be loving this person in sin over here. Or, oh, God's like this. Well, that's not very loving. Maybe I should change God. It's love God and love people. And when they collide, guess what's more important? Love God. And if you truly love God, how He calls you to love God, you will love people, and you'll love them rightly. So they work together. They, we're always moving those things around, trying to get them to compete against one another, just as we try to do with theology in Jesus or religion in Jesus or causes in Jesus. They're not intended to be adversaries. Tells them to love God and love people. But men like this, people like this, churches like this that replace Jesus with rules, Jesus with law. Jesus with morality call it what you want what I've seen is that more love for God and more love for people is rarely the result when churches replace Jesus for rules many of you have probably been some of you have probably been in legalistic circles or churches before did you feel loved is that how you would describe your experience man I just felt so loved by these people who were constantly watching to see whether I broke the rules, right? When you weren't dancing and drinking, whatever it was, did you feel more love from God? You know, because I'm not dancing and drinking. That just makes me love God that much more. I'm glad we have those rules. Typically, that's not the result. It's not to suggest that those rules are bad. But when those rules become more important than Jesus, they're bad. And the particular rule of law that men and women choose to make too important differ amongst all of us. I bet we all, in our hearts, in the quiet, dark recesses of our hearts, have that great command. That great command that we believe our relationship with God is dictated upon. And that great command or commands that we believe others' salvation is dependent upon. And we view our relationship with God that way, so we view our relationship with others that way. Essentially, the Sadducees, or I'm sorry, the lawyer here, represents those people who reject Jesus and place their hope for salvation and their ability to what they have determined as the great command. The Bible says that the laws God gave were never intended to save. And so churches that try to do that become two things. Hypocritical, because they can't obey, though they might argue they can if they're really good at hiding their sin. Or very hypocritical, I'm sorry, hypercritical, as they look out at others and judge how well they're doing according to the same law. The elevation of law, I don't think, ever results in a love for God or a love for others. On the contrary, when you elevate law over Jesus, it simply perpetuates a fear of God and a spirit of comparison with others. So some leaders think more about rules than they do about Jesus, and they lead churches that love law more than they love the Lord. And they commonly say and talk about all the things they obey. This is what I obey. Oh, they shouldn't be disobeying. But this is what I obey. So you got I do, you got I support, you got I believe, and you got I obey. And the common theme in all those is I. It's all about me. Jesus may save me, but. It's dependent upon me to stay saved. With the best intentions, I think many of us replace and therefore reject the lordship of Jesus. And again, it's not that any of those things are evil in themselves, but when they become supreme, they are. Discipleship and growing in Christ is a process where we live more and more under the lordship of Jesus, where. He is the one who is reigning in our hearts and in our thoughts and in our actions in all areas of our lives. The question is, how do we know if we are living under his lordship and not just some other spiritual-looking, sounding, feeling lord? Because it's very unlikely if someone is excited about theology or excited about a uh, pro-life movement or excited about um, worship on, on Sundays. It's very unlikely to go, oh, You've got a different Lord, right? In fact, I think we can be delusional ourselves sometimes. Thinking that the means to worship God are actually drawing us closer to Him when they may actually be replacing Him. So after all the questions are done, Jesus in the very end here in verse 41 asks them some questions. We're really good at asking Jesus questions. We're not so good at listening to Jesus questions. He asks them some questions. He wants to asked these men who say they believe in God, that they love God, that they love His Word, that they're waiting for the Messiah, he asked them some questions that I think we should ask ourselves. And the first one he asked is, what do you think about Christ? What do you think about Christ? Now, that's a strange question. Um, it sounds a little difficult to answer. I was thinking about when my wife asked me, God bless her, the question that typically comes about 10 o'clock at night when my head's about to hit the pillow and the question is what do you think about the kids nothing I don't think about the kids ever and I don't want to think about them right now um, you don't know how to answer that question right there's like a thousand ways you can answer that question what I think about the kids there's only one way she wants me to answer but I'm like okay what what's the right answer here what will get me to sleep the soonest I don't know what do you think about the kids I don't uh, I don't know I think about the kids um, It's not very specific. And so I think maybe Jesus is asking it differently, it's received differently, and this is how I'm going to understand it. And it's this question Do you think about the Christ? Do you ever think about the Christ? Let that question sit with you for a second. Do you ever think about the Savior? How much do you think about the Savior? How often do you think about the Savior? When do you think about the Savior? Do you ever think about the Savior outside of a Bible study or Sunday morning? Do you ever think about the Savior unless someone else is telling you to think about the Savior? Because these guys are thinking about a lot of other things a lot of the time. How does the amount and depth of your time and energy and thought about Jesus compare with your thinking about religious rituals how much of that time and energy and depth of thought about Jesus how does that compare with how you think about the social causes that are so important to you or the theological positions that you hold so dearly or the biblical commands that you think are so important It seems to go without saying that if we really thought a lot about our own salvation how desperately we need saving that we wouldn't find it very difficult to think about Jesus often we would realize very easily that Jesus perfect sacrifice is greater than any ritual we might perform we would see that Jesus perfect victory is greater than any social change we might affect we would see that Jesus' perfect revelation of God, that, that Jesus is not just God-like, that, that God is actually Christ-like. They would see that His perfect revelation of God is greater than any view of God we might imagine. If we really understand how much we needed a Savior, we would see that Jesus' perfect obedience was not only necessary, but greater than any goodness we might be able to attain with our own. Basically, we think less about ourselves. You think about Jesus. And then the last question he asks, second question here, makes it a little more personal. So I think it's easy for us to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I think about Jesus. Yeah, I think about him all the time. He asks, Whose son is he? Now the scribes think he's asking a question about lineage, which he could partially be. They answer by saying he's the son of David, meaning he is the descendant of David. But I think more than likely he's asking a question about character. If you say you're the son of someone, Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder, it was descriptive of who he was. So I think he's more asking, what do you think Christ is like? In other words, what do you think about when you think about Christ? What do you think about when you think about Christ? What is he like? And so we quote Psalm 110, which is a psalm that David wrote, a psalm that they will have never attached to, a messianic psalm. And it says that David, speaking in the Spirit, so he adds that little jab in there like, David, remember the Bible psalm that you accept as God's Word. So David says in the Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, implying that David calls his future son, the Messiah, Lord. Not just Lord, but he describes him as sitting in a position of heavenly authority at the right hand of God. In other words, Jesus is not just Savior. He's Lord. And it's not enough for us to just think about Him as Savior. We need to think about Him as Lord as well. He is not just a Savior who did something. He is a Lord who is continuing to do something. He's not just saving, He's reigning. And if we only receive Jesus as Savior, here's the danger. We run the risk of replacing Him with something else as Lord. Individuals are as guilty as this as churches. And it reminded me of when Paul wrote to the Galatian church, which was the first letter he wrote. It was a new church, a church that had just been planted, a church that had just came to understand the gospel and these Jewish Christians were coming in and saying, hey, uh, that's great that Jesus saved you, but now you need to do this. Get circumcised, obey these rules, do these things. And they're like, what? And Paul says more than once, but I think he says it best in Galatians 3.3, he says, are you so foolish? Are you this dense? He says, having begun by the Spirit, Having been saved by the Spirit, like not about you, the Spirit saved you. You were saved by grace through faith. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Have you accepted Jesus as Savior and then believe, like, well, now I gotta figure it out. Now that I'm saved, I gotta do my Christian life and do good and believe right and all these things. Have having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Again, I think with the best intentions, sometimes many of us reject the lordship of Jesus, the one who has given us life, and we replace him with something we think is the means to live that life. It's not enough to just say Jesus is Lord. Jesus already told us that in Matthew seven. I think Matthew seven is perhaps one of the most frightening passages in Scripture, where Jesus warns that it's going to be many who stand before him in the end. On the last day, and they acknowledge him as Lord, and if you listen carefully, right in the context of this sermon, you think about it, we hear them saying, "Lord, Lord, we we performed all the right rituals, Lord, Lord, you know we we fought all the right causes, and Lord, Lord, we we held the right theology when everyone else abandoned it, and Lord, Lord, we followed the right rules, and we were moral while the rest of the world was immoral, even those Immoral Christians, so-called. And to them, Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I wasn't really your Lord. You thought I was your Savior. So the question for all of us, how can we know Jesus is Lord? I'll tell you that it has nothing to do with the rituals you follow, or the causes you support, or how much theology you know, or how well you behave. It has to do with the answer that you gave or give to the question Jesus asked his disciples back in Matthew 16 Who do you say Jesus is? Those who receive Jesus as Savior will not say, Look at what I do, look at what I believe. Those who accept Jesus as Savior will say, look at what Jesus has done. And that will be constant. You won't be able to talk enough about Jesus because you'll recognize your own brokenness, your own mistakes, your own screwed upness. will be like, praise God, look what Jesus has done. Don't look what I did and what I'm doing. Look what Jesus has done. And if you receive Jesus as Lord, you also say, look at what Jesus is doing. What do I mean by that? Let me close with a verse out of Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 quotes the same psalm, partially, that Jesus quotes in Psalm 110. Here's what it says. It says, Every priest stands daily at his service. It's doing a comparison between Jesus, the perfect priest, and the priests of Judaism. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, who can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa! When David was speaking about the Lord, it says He is at the right hand of God, but that was after He made sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until His enemies would be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is our Savior. We have been made perfect in the eyes of God, but we're being sanctified. He is our Lord. He is your Savior, and He's the only reason you have life in eternity. And He's your Lord, giving you that same life now, changing you more and more and more. And you will know if Jesus is Lord of your life when you see that what you do leads you to love Jesus more. If what you support leads you to live and depend and grow in Jesus more. If what you believe leads you to love Jesus more. And if what you obey causes you to love Jesus more. Replacing Christ's Lordship Is much more than just rejecting His rule. It's actually refusing Christ's sacrifice. But recognizing Jesus' lordship, revering Jesus' lordship, is not merely swearing allegiance. It's actually resting in His righteousness as you live under His rule and He changes you my prayer for us as a church that will be known as a church that talks much about Jesus, that loves Jesus, and from that, a love for the world overflows. I don't want to be known as the church that has really cool worship or that um, has perfect theology or supports all the right things and the right causes or even is really moral, though my prayer is certainly that our love for Jesus causes that. My hope is that we're known for a church when, when you interact with our people, we're always pointing at Jesus. And we're submitting to Jesus every aspect of our lives. And when someone says, What do you gonna do? say, like, I don't know, I gotta talk to Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's the theme of everything. Let's pray.